Once more, welcome everyone. Good to have you in worship today. Franklin Campus, we love you so much. Friends in Perry, Oklahoma, we love you all. Uh, open your words, uh, the Bible's with you, and let's, let's listen for a word from God this morning. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 31. It's the main preaching text this morning. Genesis 31, but put your finger there and flip all the way back to Joshua chapter 24. All the way, it's just a few pages. Joshua 24, very familiar passage, a, a turning point in the Old Testament. I, I want to start with you there. Joshua 24, about verse 14. Joshua's drawing a kind of line in the sand for, for the people here. He's asking them to make a choice. He says that this is the moment when you need to put away your idols. Understand that in the culture, the Old Testament culture, there were lots and lots of options when it came to who you were going to worship. Uh, many, many cultures, groups, uh, tribes would have their own little gods, little household gods sometimes or tribal gods. And it seems that throughout a lot of the Old Testament period, even those who would sometimes claim to worship God, they would still sort of keep other gods, uh, these little uh, household gods, sort of uh, on backup just in case. You understand what I'm saying? That they would claim that they believed in God. They would claim to worship and trust God. But they tended to have little gods on, 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 on backup uh, just in case God didn't come through. And, and Joshua reaches a point with the people in chapter 24 when he literally says, you're going to have to put these gods away. You've got to serve God alone. It is not an option for you as a believer, not an option for you if you're going to have genuine faith. It's simply not an option for you to believe in God, but then also have other things on backup, other little gods in your pocket. So Joshua says, you've got to choose this day who you're going to serve. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Is it going to be the gods of your fathers across the river, the gods of those around you? He says, you've got to serve God alone. As for me and my family, he says, we're going to serve the Lord. He brings the people to that kind of decision, and it's the same kind of decision I, I want you to consider today. I want you to ask yourself who it is that you serve. Are you serving God alone? Because Genesis chapter 31 introduces us to a woman named Rachel, who tends to be one of those who keeps a, a few gods in her purse just in case God doesn't come through. We're going to pick up in the middle of the story now, back in Genesis chapter 31, verse 22 is where we'll begin. Jacob, of course, has gone to his uncle Laban's household to find a wife. That was 20 years ago from where we're going to pick up in the story today. These two men deserve each other. They are both liars. They are both cheaters. They are both rat finks. I guess the way God works it, everybody gets the father-in-law they deserve, perhaps. And Jacob certainly gets the father-in-law that he deserves in Laban. These two men absolutely deserve one another. But at this point, 20 years after being in the house, 20 years, after having taken two of Laban's daughters as his wives, after having children now and giving Laban grandchildren, God speaks to Jacob and says, it's time to return home. It's time to go home. So Jacob now comes to his wife Rachel, his wife Leah. They're gathering everything up. They're going to have to leave in secret because they know that Laban is never going to let them go. He's never going to let them leave. So Jacob goes to his wife Rachel and he says, I believe that God is calling us to go back home. And she speaks like a believer. She says, well, if that's what God says, that's what we've got to do. We're going to go. But before she leaves, she does an amazing thing. She goes over to the mantle in the house where she grew up. She goes over to the mantle where there are these little household gods, little bitty statues, little figurines. She takes those, puts them in her purse, 
and she leaves. Nobody knows that she's stolen the gods. And this is where the story picks up. Uh, Genesis chapter 31, verse 22. Listen to what the word of God will say to you today. Three days later, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. So he gathered a group of his relatives and set out in hot pursuit. He caught up with Jacob seven days later in the hill country of Gilead. But the previous night, God had appeared to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream and told him, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. Laban caught up with Jacob as he was camped in the hill country of Gilead, and he set up his camp not far from Jacob's. What do you mean by stealing away like this, Laban demanded. How dare you drag my daughters away like prisoners of war? Why did you slip away secretly? Why did you steal away? And why didn't you say you wanted to leave? I would have given you a farewell feast. No, he wouldn't. I would have given you singing and music. No, he wouldn't. Accompanied by tambourines and harps. No, he wouldn't. Why didn't you let me kiss my daughters and grandchildren and tell them goodbye? You have acted very foolishly. I could destroy you. But the God of your father appeared to me last night and warned me, leave Jacob alone. I can understand your feeling that you must go and your intense longing for your father's home. But why have you stolen my gods? Interesting. I rushed away because I was afraid, Jacob answered. I thought you'd take your daughters from me by force. But as for your gods, see if you can find them. Let the person who has taken them die. And if you find anything else that belongs to you, identify it before all these relatives of ours and I'll give it back. But Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the household idols. Laban went first into Jacob's tent to search there, and then into Leah's, and then the tents of the two servant wives, but he found nothing. Finally, he went into Rachel's tent. But Rachel had taken the household idols and hidden them in her camel saddle, and now she was sitting on them. When Laban had thoroughly searched her tent without finding them, she said to her father, Please, sir, forgive me if I don't get up for you. I'm having my monthly period. So Laban continued his search, but he could not find the household idols. Take your seats. She did what? She did what? I mean... We all thought that Rachel was a believer. If you've read the story up to this point, Rachel has always sounded like somebody who really believed in God, you know, the one true God. She's always talked like a person who had it straight. We've heard her pray to God. We have heard her complain to God. We have heard her give glory to God. When Jacob comes and says, I believe that God wants us to go back home, and honestly, he's asking a whole lot of her. It's at that point where she shows great faith. She says, if that's what God wants us to do, then that's what we're going to do. I mean, I thought I had Rachel figured out. You probably thought you had her figured out too. But all of a sudden, when the time comes to do the packing and the moving, she does the strangest thing. I never expected this out of her. Nobody said anything up to this point about other gods. Nobody said anything about little gods, little fake household gods that sort of sat on the mantle in the only house that Rachel's ever known for her whole life. Nobody said a word about it, but, but when it came time to packing and moving, this woman that... 
we all thought was a believer, she goes and she, she takes the idols off the mantle and sticks them in her purse, you know, just for a little backup, just in case God doesn't come through. Why would she do that? Anybody ever moved? See your hands. You ever had to move? Yeah. Moving is stressful. Now, sometimes we enjoy the move. Sometimes we're looking forward to the move. No matter whether you're looking forward to it or whether you're being dragged away by force. Understand, moving is one of the most stressful things that you will ever do. Uh, on the list of stressors, things that give us stress, according to the experts, moving is number two, right behind funerals. Moving is a very, very very difficult thing. It stresses us because it makes our brains work in ways that are just very, very difficult for us. I mean, have you ever had to leave the only home you've ever known? Have you ever had to leave the only place that's always been safe, the only place that's home? Home's an amazing thing. I mean, once you've settled into a place, your brain programs itself simply to, to know the place. I would say if you lived in your house for any period of time, I could turn out all the lights on you and you could still walk from the living room to your bedroom. You could do it in the dark. Your brain has a map, doesn't it? You can walk through your house with your eyes closed. You'll step around the couch. You'll miss the kitchen island. You'll walk all the way through every door, and you can climb into bed. You can do that with your eyes closed. Your brain has a map of your home, and it's amazing. If you have to move, your brain literally has to reprogram itself, and it's very, very difficult. It's, it's very stressful. When you have to leave home, when you have to pack up, you, you have to move. You have to take your kids out of the only school that they've ever known. You have to change all of your routines of where you shop for groceries and where you buy your clothes and, and, and where you go to work. You have to say goodbye to all of the friends. Moving is one of the most difficult things you'll ever, ever do. You start packing up and, and literally everything that you touch, every picture that you take off the wall or every drawer you start to go through, everything you look at, it, it triggers memory. And you begin to think and, and remember, and, and honestly, it's part of what makes packing up and moving one of the hardest things you'll ever do. But, but I'm still not certain if that explains why Rachel does what she does. I know that the moving is difficult. She's never lived anywhere but right there in her daddy's house. She's never been anywhere else. She's going to a place she's never seen to, to join a family, her in-laws. God help her that she's never even met these people. They don't speak her language. They're going to be crazy. Everybody's in-laws are crazy. She's got to go live in this other place. Everything is about to change for her. So maybe it explains a little bit of why as she's packing up, she sort of pauses when she gets to the little gods that, that sort of sat on the mantle. Lots of people had them in those days. I guess some people took him more seriously than others. They're just little goofy little gods, little idols. And, and some people sort of kept them sort of like good luck charms. You just sort of have them around because, because other people, it's sort of a tradition. You could probably buy them at Cracker Barrel in those days. You understand? It's just the sort of thing people had, little kitchen witches, that, that sort of thing. 
Some people believed a lot in them. Some people probably didn't believe much in them. Some people would sort of pray to them. If the crops were going dry, you might have a little rain god there, and you'd say a few words, you'd kiss them on the head, whatever you do. I mean, some people took them really, really seriously. I don't know how seriously Rachel took these things. I don't, I don't know up until this point. She hasn't said a word about them. But in this moment of her life, this woman who's always believed in God, and, and we assume she believed enough in God, at this moment, she doesn't seem to believe that God's going to be enough. She, she takes these idols. She takes them. Puts them in her purse. It's almost as if even though she believes in God, she wants something else. She wants some backup. She wants something just in case God turns out not to be a, in case God turns out not to be enough. If I asked you about the Ten Commandments today, I'm sure you'd say you've, you've, you've probably broken most of them. Probably most of us have broken all of them in one way, shape, or form, except one. There's that, there's that first and second commandment, the one's about putting God first, the one that says you shouldn't have idols, you shall make no other image. That, that whole part about making idols, you're probably seeing when it comes to the Ten Commandments, that's the one I'm safe on. I don't have an idol. I, I'm not like Rachel in the story. We don't have little kitchen witches and goblins and goobers on, on our mantle. I don't do that. I don't pray to little things. I don't believe in little things. I'm sitting here in church on Sunday. I worship God alone. Really? Really? Because honestly, and we're rarely honest about these things, you may also have a little God stuck in your pocket for backup just in case. You understand what I'm saying? You may be more like Rachel and, and more like a whole lot of people than, than you recognize. But because honestly, as human beings, we are worshipers. We are worshipers. And you may say, Brother Tim, I don't even like church that much. Don't call me a worshiper. I am calling you a worshiper. You, you are. It's how God made us. God made every single one of us to believe in something, to serve something. God created us with this, this, this sanctuary, this altar in our heart. And you're going to set something in that place of priority. You're going to set something in the center of your life and you're going to make it ultimate. You're going to put something in the place of God in your life because that's how you're made. You are, uh, uh, you, are, you are not complete in yourself. You, you need a source. There are things that you require for life. There are things that you absolutely need that are not in you. You need a source for these things. And you're going to plug into some source. Now, I'm telling you, God is the only source for the things you need. He is the only source. But if you do not plug into God, if you do not set God in that place of priority, that ultimate place, if you do not establish Establish God on the altar of your heart, then I'm telling you, you're going to put something else there. You're going to look for some other source. You need a source for salvation, first of all. 
you, just like me, you're a sinner. And you have this recognition that there's something broken. There's something wrong with your life. There's that sense that you are this walking contradiction. The woman you want to be is not the woman that you turn out to be. The man that you long to be, the man that you dream yourself of being, is never the man that shows up every day. We are this walking contradiction, and it's because of our sin. We were created for relationship with God, but that relationship is broken. It's broken, and you need salvation just like I do. Something's got to repair that. Something's got to take our sin away. Something's got to resolve that that inner contradiction within my own heart. And God is the only thing that will bring me salvation through Christ, the only way my heart can be made whole. But if I don't find that salvation in Christ, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to go through the world looking for something else to, to give me salvation. I need salvation. That's, that's the biggest thing. But, but wrapped up with salvation is, is security. I need security. I need some source of security. I am not secure in myself. That's why I worry. And that's why you worry too. Deep down inside, you know that that you just cannot protect yourself from everything that can go wrong in the world. You know that. You need security. And the only security for you is going to be found in God when you set God up as the source of salvation and security. But if you won't do that, you're going to look elsewhere for security. You're going to find some other little God, something in your life that you can plug into that hopefully will make you feel secure. You want salvation. You want security. You want significance. You want somehow to feel like you matter. You want to feel like your life matters. And honestly, your significance comes from the fact that you matter to God. That God created you. That God himself breathed breath into your lungs so that you could live. God is the source of your significance. You matter because you matter to him. But if you don't understand that, if you don't plug into God for your significance, you're going to look elsewhere. My goodness, in our culture, this is one of the most amazing things. The way people are desperate, the way people are insane to find significance. They simply want to know that they matter. If you're doubting me, then just think about your Facebook page. Think about everybody's Facebook page. Your Facebook page is one big advertisement for who? Yourself. You want to matter. That's why you post 15 pictures a day of yourself in front of the bathroom mirror with your cell phone. All you're saying is, look at me. Look at me. Here's a picture of me in my bathroom with my cell phone, with my tongue out. Here's the same picture, only taken 15 minutes later. Hit the cell. And you post the picture or you change your status and then you keep going back to see if somebody will like you. Amazing. You make a comment and then the rest of the morning all you can think about, is anybody reading it? Is anybody commenting on my comment? Has everybody seen the 15th picture of myself in the bathroom with my cell phone? Isn't that interesting? We want to matter. We want to matter to other people. We want to somehow know that somebody is paying attention to us, that somebody's going to like us or have something to say in response to something that we said. We, 
We long for significance. If you don't find it in God, I promise you, your Facebook page is only going to make you more and more insignificant. You want salvation, you want security, you want significance, and you want satisfaction. You just want happiness, just like me. Deep down in my heart, there are things I want. I want so bad. And some of these things are are godly and good things, good gifts that God gave for us to enjoy in life. And and I want those things. I want love. I want relationships. I want something important to do every day. I mean, I have these desires. Some of my desires aren't godly. Some of them are sinful. I have those desires too. But, But the point is, in my life, I want some satisfaction. I need something that will, that will bring me the things that I want, the things that my heart craves. And I'm telling you, only God can give you that satisfaction. He's the only source for these things that you need in life, the only source. But if you don't plug your life into him, if you do not set God as the most important, the ultimate thing in your life, the source of salvation and security and satisfaction, that you understand if you don't set God up in that place, then you'll put something else in God's place. You will try to plug your life into other things, and they're going to be little gods, little pocket gods, things that you sort of keep in the back pocket just in case God doesn't come through. In the Bible, those are called idols. Now, I know in our culture, almost nobody has little idols. If you walk in anybody's house, it's very rare that you would see anybody with with little statues or or figurines. Sometimes you would. A lady that used to cut my hair had an itty-bitty idol sitting on the mirror right there where she would work in the salon every day. She worshipped an idol. So some people do, but I know most of you don't. You don't have a literal idol. You don't make little figurines or statues. You're not praying to or kissing the head of any kind of little statue. You're thinking this doesn't apply to you. I promise it does. Let me ask you some questions, just sort of diagnostic questions to try to identify the idols in your life, the things that perhaps you've set up, you've plugged into to take the place of, of God. To start with this question, I'm not going to just say, well, what's the idol in your life because you're going to tell me that you don't have one. So let me ask you this, what do non-Christians around you worship? Again, I've said everybody's a worshiper. Everybody's going to plug their life into something. What are the non-Christians around you What is it that they make the priority? What is at the center of their lives? What do they look to for significance and security and satisfaction? What would you say? Give me some ideas. Business, yeah, in the sense of work. A lot of people plug themselves into work. Yeah. What else? What do you think is probably one of the main things? Yeah, I happen to be by the offering plate. Yeah, money. Everybody right now, if you got any, reach in your billfold, reach in your purse, take out a bill. Seriously, yeah, take one out, take one out, come on, unless you're broke, and you may be, take out a bill, out of your purse, out of your pocket, just take out a bill. I'm not going to take up an offering, people, y'all are freaking out. (laughs) Take out a bill, all right, really interesting how important these things are in people's lives. Maybe in your life, honestly, 
money becomes a tremendous source of significance. In other words, the more of this I have, the more important I am. You understand? That's how it works. The more of this I have, then the less I have to worry about. I don't have to worry about maybe losing my job or or losing my house. I don't have to worry so much because if I have money, it will take care of me. Do you see how this works? Money becomes an idol. And in our culture, it is one of the most rival gods. Actually, all through Scripture, uh, money is one of the most important rival gods. That's probably why it's so interesting that on the back of our money in the United States, on the back of our bills, you'll notice the phrase that's very controversial. Why is it so controversial? Because money is one of the most important rival gods in our culture. And that's why these become fighting words. What are the words? In God we trust. Isn't that amazing? We have in God we trust on our money, and it absolutely flies up the nose of a whole lot of people. Why? Because this is one of the rival gods. In our culture, this is what matters. It matters to nearly everyone. It becomes the center of life for those who do not have God as the center of their life. It's just one of the many, many options, and there are many, many options for what you can serve. But I'm telling you, money's a big one. You want to have some fun? Seriously, uh, seriously, y'all want to have some fun? Okay, raise the bill up in your hand. Y'all ready? Okay, just give it to the person on your right. Go ahead. Seriously, give it. Give it. Give it. Anybody get a really good deal in that? Yeah. Anybody get a really good deal? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And some of you are so mad at me right now. You are so mad at me. And that's what I'm thinking. You got a problem. You got a problem. The best antidote for greed, the best antidote for making money the center of your life is to learn the joy in giving it. You understand? You simply learn the joy in giving it away. And if that is not joyful for you, there's something in your heart that's wrong. What is it that non-Christians around you worship? If you can identify that, you will probably begin to see what the idols are going to be in your life. Because honestly, most of us just borrow gods from people around us. When we're looking for a little God in our back pocket, you know, just in case God doesn't come through, we tend to borrow those little gods from other people. What is it that non-Christians around you worship? Let me ask you this one. What determines whether you are happy or sad every day? What determines whether you are happy or sad every day? That, my friend, probably is going to reveal what you put at the center of your life. Whatever it is that you've given control over to. What determines whether you are happy or sad every day? For some of us, it's going to turn around relationships. Some of us, honestly, it is other people, relationships at the center. And honestly, Scripture says we're all supposed to love our neighbor more than ourselves. You are supposed to consider other people more important than yourself. That's what Christians do. But some of us take this to a point of sickness. 
We really have a kind of codependency. We live our lives in such a way where honestly other people or maybe one other person really becomes God to us. They hold in their hand our happiness, our sadness for every single day. You will not have a good day until your boyfriend calls you or texts you. You're not going to be having a good day until you hear from your children that day. Do you understand? For some of us, it's relationships. For some of us, it's something as meaningless or or even small as, 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 I would say, television. For some people, television becomes the idol. You understand what I'm saying? And you think, well, that's crazy. Well, I have to ask you, how many hours a day are you watching? If you're giving television or or any other kind of entertainment the biggest part of your time, then understand, you're giving it the biggest part of your life. I would say that's worship. If you love anything with your entire mind, body, and soul, then I'm telling you, you've put it in the place of God. If your whole day is ruined because Live with Regis and Kelly ain't live today, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with you. You have things very out of place. What do you dream of? Or I could ask it this way, what do you obsess over? You want to identify the the, the little God in your life, the, the, the God in your pocket? What do you dream about? What do you obsess over? For many of us, it's sexuality. In our culture, we worship bodies. Drive down the road, every billboard's going to have bodies on it. If they're selling chewing gum, they will sell it with a woman in a bikini. Do you understand? We worship bodies. And some of you are, are obsessed with your own body. You're healthy enough. You're, you're good enough. But every single day, you can't stop thinking about losing another inch or, or, or putting on uh, more muscles. You understand? There's a kind of sickness. There's a kind of worship that is involved. We become obsessed over bodies. Some of us honestly can't sit through a solid hour without sexual fantasies taking over our mind. You understand, if you give your mind to anything to that degree, I'm telling you, you're worshiping. It's worship to give so much of yourself to any idea, any fantasy, any pursuit. What do you dream of? Do you dream about getting your next drink? Do you wake up in the morning thinking about when you'll get your first drink? Or do you wake up in the morning trying to figure out where you'll get your next handful of pills? I'm telling you, it's not that hard to find out what you're worshiping. Not that hard to identify the false gods in your life. Just ask yourself what you're obsessed with. What are you addicted to? What do you dream of? Let me ask you this one. Where do you turn when you hurt? Where do you turn when you hurt? You know, honestly, the last couple of weeks have been very, very difficult for me. And I've begun to understand that one of my little gods, and you'll have to understand how this works in my life as a pastor. Um, I think sometimes I put church, the church, you all honestly, in a much too high place in my heart. I think sometimes church becomes my false idol. Because when we were going through our devastating trial last week, honestly, I wanted to turn to you all in some ways before I turned to God. It's strange how it works because there really are sometimes good things. Good things 
even good things that God gives us, but whenever we begin to make these good things ultimate, whenever we begin to put them in the place of God, when we begin to turn to these other things, even if it's something like the church or, or, or being busy at church, when we begin to let those things take over, when we begin to look to those things as the source of what only God can and should be giving us, then understand we're worshiping. We've let something become a false God. One more question I want you to consider. If you're trying to identify the false God perhaps in your life, ask yourself this question. What is it in your life this moment that you're most disappointed with? What is it that you're most disappointed with? I know that's kind of an odd question to ask when we're trying to determine what you worship, but but there's a pattern in Scripture. If you read through the Old Testament... The people of God frequently turned away from the one true God, and they would worship idols. And often in the Old Testament, the, the, the false god they would turn to was, was a, a little false, goofy god named Baal. His name was Baal. Baal was a god of sexuality. So understand they were turning away from God in order to indulge and begin to worship sexuality. Understand that. Things don't change that much. But Baal was also, in a big way, the god of rain. Baal was the God that brought rain. And so when even the people of God who claimed to believe in God and trust in the one true God, when the the crops would go out, they would believe in God, but they would also kind of, you know, kiss Baal's head just for luck, for rain. They would turn away from God and they would begin to flirt with Baal, you know, a pocket God, back up just in case. But what would happen? When God would want to bring them back to him, he would do sort of an amazing thing. If it's the rain God they're chasing after, then God would do an amazing thing in order to bring them back to him. What would he do? He would send drought. Yeah. It's God's little way of saying, okay, you think Baal's going to make it rain? Why don't you just let Baal bring your rain? And God just shut down the heaven. It's amazing how drought would remind God's people who God really was. Amazing how the drought would make them understand that Baal is worthless. Baal is silly. Baal has no power. He's a little pocket God. He's a false God. This is silly for us to trust in him. And they would turn back to God. It was the drought that would remind them who sends the rain. It was the drought that would remind them who God is. So I'm asking you, What's the drought in your life right now? What are you most disappointed with? Is it a financial drought? Because sometimes, I can't say all the time, but but sometimes for those of us who worship money, God sends a financial drought. Just so you can find out that your money won't save you. Your money won't bring you any of the things that you think it brings you. It will provide you no security. You're going to trust in money. God just may send a financial drought, not to punish you, but simply to bring you back to him so that honestly he can bless your life. If you put something that is not life-giving at the center of your life, then guess what? The very life will be sucked out of you. God loves you and wants to bring you back. If you're worshiping money, it's liable to be a financial drought. When you begin to trust God once more for your security, for your provision, when you put all of that back upon the Lord, when you put him back at the center place of your heart, you might be amazed how other things begin to work themselves out. 
Is it a relational drought? Maybe you're one of those people who simply longs to have somebody to share your life with. You absolutely long to have a man in your life. And honestly, this is what you dream of. This is what you obsess over. And you have made the pursuit of a relationship, the very God in your life. I'm telling you, maybe that explains the relational drought that you're going through. Maybe that's why you are so incredibly lonely and almost desperate to be with someone. Maybe, just maybe, if you would put God in that central place of your life, if you would plug yourself into him for all of your significance and all of your security and all of your satisfaction, you just might find out that when you put God in that proper place, your relationships might begin to work themselves out. The the priority relationship is your relationship with God. Until you let him love you, I'm not sure anybody else can love you. Do you understand how that works? Let's be a little bit more honest. Some of us who think so much about sexual things, some of us who our obsession has to do with sexuality. You can't really turn on your computer in private without getting yourself into trouble. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your obsession, your little false God is this God of physical pleasure, this God of sexuality, and it is all you think about, and it has a tremendous grip on you. You should not be surprised to know that if it hasn't already happened, what's coming your way is a sexual drought. There will be no satisfaction in that for you. You are about to be one of the most messed up people. And it is simply because you have taken something small, a good gift that God has given for for you and your spouse, that good gift, but you have elevated that gift above the giver of this thing. Do you understand? You have begun to worship something, to put something at the center of your life that is not life-giving. You've begun to look to one thing, this one thing, and you think it's going to satisfy you, and it can't. It never will. You're going to come into a kind of drought that you've never imagined. But understand, if you pay attention to where the droughts are in your life, if you stop and ask yourself, what am I so disappointed with? What are the biggest frustrations in my life? You just might stumble on the little false gods that you set up. It's important that you discover them. It's important that you name them, and that is why God himself will will focus his work in your life to helping you understand what you're worshiping. Because if you don't have God at the center, or if you're one of those people that you think you have God at the center, but at the same time you're carrying some other little pocket gods, you know, just for backup, just in case, I want you to understand, God will have nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. One of the amazing things about the story here with Rachel is, is what she says just prior to the scripture that we read. She does a little rehearsal about her life when she's getting ready to leave and go to the place that God has for, for her and Jacob. And you have to notice what she says. She talks about her life and how much it stinks. She talks about her daddy and how good it's going to be to get away from him. And she talks about how her daddy just treats her like a dog. She talks about her life and how miserable it is and how there's nothing here for her. Let's just go where God leads us because everything here is a disaster. So let me ask her, why in the world, Rachel, why in the world is if these little household gods haven't done anything for you yet, why are you still holding on to them? You understand? She takes these gods as if they're going to somehow bring her luck. And she ain't had nothing but bad luck yet. 
These gods are doing nothing for her. And in the same way, whatever it is that you're clinging to, would you just be honest enough to recognize it's not doing anything for you. Whatever you're turning to to satisfy the craving in your heart, your heart just continues to get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. How desperate do you think you'll have to be to finally admit that this thing, this person that you have made ultimate in your life really can't satisfy you? Rachel's big moment comes, the moment when she needs to get up, the moment she needs to surrender these false gods. But what does she do? She just sits on them. Some of you this morning, that's what you're doing. You're just going to sit on these, aren't you? You love this little thing in your life. You love this false God. It's never done anything for you yet, but maybe, just maybe, just maybe it will. You continue to sit on this thing, to cling to this thing. Truth is, you have learned to love this thing. There's a minister in the 1800s named Thomas Chalmers who preached this sermon that is really, really long with a lot of really big words. It just makes you wonder how people in the 1800s, how smart they must have been. His sermon was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That was the title of his sermon, The Expulsive Power power of a new affection. Expulsive. It has to do with expelling something. Thomas Chalmers' sermon is about false gods in the lives of the people he was preaching to. He was trying to give them some wisdom and guidance in in, in how it is that you can finally start a war with these false gods in your life and get rid of them. How do you expel these false gods from your life? How do you push this love of money, this desire for relationship? How do you expel these habits, these addictions out of your life? Where is the expulsive power? Thomas Chalmers' word to his congregation was really simple. The expulsive power comes in finding a new affection. In other words, you've got to find something in your life that you love more. Something you love more than money. Something that you love more than popularity or significance with your friends. Something you love more than sexual fantasy. Something you love more than everything else that can take that place of God in your life. You've got to find something that you love more. When you learn to love something more, All these other things in your life just seem to lose their attraction. It's the first commandment, I believe. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Truly, there are no other gods. We know that. There is only one God. But just as truly, the options for what we can worship seem limitless. You and I can sit here ourselves and come up with any number of things we can give our lives to. It will not be God, but that doesn't mean we can't make it a God. No other gods before me. Do you understand? If you're going to root these false gods out of your life once and for all, the only way to do that is to love God more. You have to love God more than everything else. That's what Rachel just didn't do. 
in that moment of insecurity, in that moment of trial, in that moment of fear, she did trust God. She believed in God. She knew how to pray to God, but she put some little gods in her purse just for backup, just in case. How tragic that she didn't seem to know that God is enough. Pray with me. God, there's no question that if I asked every person who walked out of this house today, if they love you, every single one of them would say, of course, of course, they love you. The question, Lord, is whether we love you above everything else. Do we love you more than everything else? And then, Lord, we begin to separate ourselves between those who worship you those who worship something false, something small. God, I, I pray that those of us in this house, those in the sound of my voice, will really listen to the word and, and really begin to ponder and examine their own heart and to look for the little false gods that they've allowed to, 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 to set up there in the sanctuary of their soul. And Lord, I pray that we will begin ruthlessly to eliminate these false allegiances, these false devotions from our lives, Lord. There's only one way to do that, and that is to love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength. Lord, help us to love you more than anything and most of all. Lord Jesus, I pray that you just come down heavy upon hard hearts today. I pray, Lord, that those who have begun to, to, to chase after the things of the world will suddenly find those attractions, those desires, absolutely overwhelmed by a desire for you, a desire to know you, to love you, and to find all security and salvation and significance and satisfaction in you. You are the only true God. You are the only one that we can worship. You are the only one who will satisfy our souls, Lord Jesus. So help us, Lord, to turn away from our idols and to turn to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.